Hi, I'm Maggie Gates. Welcome to Justice Matters. Today on Justice Matters, we take a deep dive into the UN Forum on Business and Human Rights, which just wrapped up its 12th iteration at the end of 2003. Co-host Aminta Awesome attended the forum and interviewed working group member Professor Robert McCorkdale to get some background on the inner workings of the forum. Professor Awesome also spoke with longtime forum attendee Dr. Corinne Lewis, a legal consultant who has worked with organizations of all types on the topics of business and human rights to get her perspective on how the forum has evolved over the years. Together, these two interviews paint a picture of the origins of the forum, how it has led to the development of a robust sector of business and human rights, the interplay between attendees from business, government, civil society, and rights holders, as well as the future of the forum. First, we're speaking to UN human rights expert, Robert McCorkadale. Robert McCorkadale is the Emeritus Professor of International Law and Human Rights at the University of Nottingham, based in the United Kingdom. He is also a human rights practitioner who has himself been involved in groundbreaking cases before national and international bodies. In 2022, the UN Human Rights Council appointed Professor McCorkadale to the Working Group on Business and Human Rights. The Working Group is a five-member expert body that provides advice to the Human Rights Council and to other relevant actors on corporate respect for human rights. As someone like you who has worked to combine human rights advocacy and academic inquiry, it's great to be with a kindred spirit. Although I have to say that I have much less experience in both fields by far, but thank you so much, um, Professor McCorkadale, for agreeing to speak with us today. Absolutely my pleasure. and lovely to have you interested in this issue, Aminta. Wonderful. Thank you. I should also say that you're a qualified lawyer and mediator yourself. How did you become drawn to the field of business and human rights? Well, it was about 30 years ago, believe it or not, I was doing some training of business on a range of different matters when I was an academic, and the issues came up that somebody was away, they needed a new session, and I thought, why not talk about human rights? So I did a kind of interactive session of which the key issue came at the end of it, why are you talking to us about this? Business has no responsibility about human rights matters. This is a matter for government. And it made me think, well, business should have a responsibility because to many people in the world, the closest engagement they have with any powerful group is going to be business. They might be working in a factory. They might be providing all their their goods that they grow to a business. They might be engaging in business sales So to think that somehow or other business had no responsibility in this area really made me puzzle. And I've been working a lot on the right to self-determination, which is all about people's having a right, thinking beyond the state boundaries, the state borders. And I thought, okay, this is an issue which needs some exploration. And so that's really how it began, really, um, probably 30 years ago. Have you seen any changes in the field in the time that you've been working on uh the business, the responsibility of businesses to human rights. I mean, one thing that I notice is I feel like that question of whether businesses do have responsibility seems to now be answered, at least. I don't I don't know if you agree. I, I do. I mean, I think that's one of the extraordinary things that when I talk to 
businesses today, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them then will say, yes, we've got a human rights policy, or we understand we need to do something on maybe modern slavery, or we have some kind of responsibility. There's almost no major business who will say we have no responsibilities. And that's a huge change in 30 years. That, of course, doesn't mean they implement their responsibilities, just like most states don't. But the other thing I've noticed is governments are no longer saying this is an area entirely for us. You know, it, we control it. We have the obligations. Instead, you know, the Human Rights Council, the United Nations, time and time again, are passing resolutions which include some comment about business responsibility. And there's no dissent. There's no state saying, wait a minute, businesses don't have responsibilities. Highlighted by, of course, this important document, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which was um, at, uh, first approved in, in 2011. The other aspect, and I speak from this angle as a practicing lawyer, as you'd understand, that many years ago, the only way to have any accountability through law in a legal case would be to bring an action against the government for breach of their obligations to protect people from a company. So, for example, there was a case brought before the African Commission on Human and People's Rights against Nigeria for the actions of oil companies. That was the only way to do it. Whereas today, we have actions against those very oil companies directly. There's a case in the United Kingdom, there's a case in, in the Netherlands, there's a case in Canada. Again and again, there's now accepted that you can bring a claim against the corporation for its human rights impacts. Now, that's extraordinary. And I think that where well, there's a huge amount still to go, we have made extraordinary changes and advances in those 30 years. Wow, amazing. And another change that we've seen in the in the field of human rights is the emergence of the Business and Human Rights Forum as a essential gathering spot for practitioners, for governments, for representatives of corporations to learn about the international standards on business respect for human rights. So 2023 was the 12th session of the forum. It's now one of the biggest human rights events hosted each year by the United Nations. And I was a, a first time attendee this year. And I would say that it was not actually what I expected. For me, it felt like both a diplomatic meeting, but also a practitioner's conference. It was a great brainstorming session. I had a lot of new ideas after attending, and it felt like a reunion because you meet a lot of people who have worked in human rights in different aspects, whether that be uh, on the part of governments or advising businesses or as um, advocates like myself. Could you tell us a little bit about the forum and about what relationship the working group has with the forum? Oh, Mitra, I'm so thrilled you went to it. And this year was extraordinary. We had 4,000 participants. I mean, that's amazing, of which about 2,600 or so were in person, the rest online, because we're still running it as hybrid. And to have that number of people engaged, enthusiastic, trying to learn more, trying to understand more, is just extraordinary. And is a reflection, really, of your previous question, where have we come in 30 years? I mean, 30 years ago, it, firstly, it wasn't even an area, let alone anyone as such practicing in it. Now you have practicing lawyers who that's experience. You have academics working in this field. You have companies who have whole teams in this area. You have governments who now recognise they need to fill this within their current ministries. So that's a reflection of where we've come. And also what I would say, and you've expressed it brilliantly, what the forum is like, it's all those things. And the only sad thing is being now on the working group helping to organise the 
for him is I don't get as much of the reunion part as I wish I had. <laughs> uh, but I still think that there is this real sense of it being a major gathering. You know, we had, I think, about 40 sessions in three different rooms. There was so many different ideas going on. There was a sense of an amazing kind of uh, energy that comes from that. And I think also the importance of the forum is it does bring together the key stakeholders around the world. And when I say the key stakeholders for the forum, that means governments, it means businesses, it means civil society, it means rights holders. So that's quite a lot of engagement which get you can get together at the forum. And what is the relationship between the working group and the forum for those who aren't as familiar with the connection between the the uh, working group, which is a body that was established by the Human Rights Council, and the forum, which people may attend and not actually understand that there's a connection between the two? Thanks. Maybe I'll go back one step. You rightly say the working group's established by um, the UN Human Rights Council, but that came out of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, where it was thought, where do we go to now? And the decision was to create this working group, um, which is deliberately experts from around the world. Um, there's just five of us. We each represent different regions. Um, so, for example, I have colleagues who represent um, Africa, colleagues who represent Latin America and the Caribbean, colleagues who represent uh, Eastern Europe, colleagues who represent Asia and the Pacific, which is a huge region. Um, and I represent, as an Australian, I represent what's called WEOG, Western Europe and Others Group. And the others are countries you've probably heard of, such as United States of America, mm -hmm. uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Israel and Turkey. So it is the least geographic of re regions. Um, but what happens is our mandate basically is to help means to implement the UN guiding principles through all the different methods we can do so. We have, for example, we, we can take um, complaints and deal with those. We, we, we aren't a uh, resol resolutionary body, so we can't actually make a final decision, but we can and do publicly deal with uh, complaints on that matters, as well as run regional forums. We do country visits where we go to particular countries and investigate deeply what, what is happening there. And we also, of course, have um, production of thematic reports. So we do two a year. We've just produced one recently on the extractive sector and just transition. And the current report we're working on is investors, environmental, social and governance issues and human rights. How are they fitting together? So the forum is just one of our many um, uh, tasks of which we are all, of course, part time trying to do other jobs at the same time. Um, so having said all that as a background, I'm sorry for that, what I'm uh, saying is part of our responsibility is to organise the forum. And we have a magnificent secretariat who are the people who are full-time employees who help to create the, the, these forums, and they do an, a fabulous job. Without them, it would not happen. But so our role is to organise it. And part of that is we send out a call for proposals so that Anybody in the world can suggest a panel and suggest who might be speakers. And then quite a lot of our role then is both determining which panels we, we will take forward. And there's often a lot of trying to maybe bring in some speakers from different panel, different proposals so we can get a good panel together. But also coming back to this earlier point about trying to get as much as possible on every single panel a speaker from a government, a speaker from business, a speaker from civil society, 
and also reflective of the various regions um, so that we can't, we, we would not just have a panel purely from one region unless it was expressly said to be a regional panel. So that's part of the many responses you have in trying to get together this vibrant and inspiring forum. Thanks so much for sharing about that. It's a lot that goes into the background, I can imagine, and it's a huge event. Um, so it's it's quite impressive, I have to say, that all of those different pieces of the puzzle come together eventually. Um, one thing that I noticed as a participant this year, which was surprising, speaks to what you're talking about in terms of wanting to have representatives from different uh, stakeholders. Uh, and it was surprising to me to see lawyers who I know, because I know of their work, who are themselves suing companies uh, and activists who are often maybe protesting companies, arranging protests or organizing coalitions, sitting down with some of the world's biggest companies themselves. Um, and everyone there is talking about human rights, which is a very unique space to be in. Give us a picture of how this all comes together. How do you manage to bring the different stakeholders to the table? And how does that ultimately affect the business and human rights agenda? Oh, that's a really um, perceptive point to make, how it is fabulous to see this kind of engagement. It varies. I mean, some companies are less and lawyers are less willing to engage than others. But I think on the whole, because it's a relatively new area, we're all learning. And there's a sense to which, you know, I'm one of the more ancient ones in this. Most of them are relatively new. They're wanting to learn. And I, for me, that is a fabulous element. There is a real collective sense of wanting to learn more. And so they aren't, don't always see each other as opponents in this, but as collectively engaging. And I think that's really important. Why? Because if you are a civil society organisation trying to bring a claim on behalf of somebody who has been adversely affected by a business, actually you want that business to be alert and aware and getting good advice about the, what the issues are and not just saying you know, batting it away and saying this is nothing to do with us. So there can be a collective desire to have better uh, ways forward. For example, for a business, actually you'd prefer to engage appropriately with your um, your workers, your local community, so that it's not... Uh, disrupted by them not feeling they're engaging in any meaningful way with with what's happening. So I think when you make that observation, you highlight some of the exciting aspects of business and human rights. Uh, but we work very hard to try and both create that atmosphere, both in how the panels are structured, in the topics we choose, and also to try and make sure there's a, a sense of um, kind of engagement so that it is a matter of everyone willing to be involved in that the broader, if you like, project in this area. Plus, it is new. So there's always exciting things that come along. I mean, look at climate change. You know, that's that wasn't an issue really on the agenda until relatively in the last few years. So I think there are a real sense to which the participants in the forum do help to create the next forum. Yeah, I can definitely say that sense of excitement is there. And I there were even some panels that I personally was excited about going to attend to learn. Um, and they were so they were oversubscribed. I mean, it was actually difficult to get in <laughs> to get a seat. So people were coming earlier and earlier. You thought you were at a, a concert of some sort because people <laughs> were rushing in early to try to get a seat because they wanted to hear what people would say, you know, from particular corporations and what 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 actually they would say about what they're doing on their human rights policies, or they would want to hear the latest developments um, in a particular area that 
you know, is inspired by the guiding principles or comes directly from the guiding principles that would inform how they carry about their work. So I did get that sense of excitement as well. Um, I'm sorry that there was a bit of crowded rooms. Unfortunately, we could because the UN building where it was in is undergoing a whole range of renovations. We only had three rooms, so it was really crowded. I mean, I was really pleased at one level because we got the UN High Commission for Human Rights present, and I think he realised just how massive a, a forum it is. Um, compared to pretty much any other UN gathering. So that, uh, yes, I'm sorry that people were sitting on the floor or not being able to get to a microphone or things like that. But it did increase the sense of excitement. (laughs) It could be a good marketing strategy. Um, (laughs) You mentioned climate change, and that was something that, um, that's something that we've worked on a lot at Harvard. And um, I noticed that several of the panels for the 2023 forum focused on the threats to human rights posed by climate change and environmental damage in different ways, biodiversity loss, I think was discussed as well as plastic pollution. Um, Was this by design? Is this a new topic for the working group and the forum? Or um, was it something that you you wanted to kind of bring to the fore? I think that's a, a good observation. I think there were two elements in that. The working group has been working on issues on climate change. They've issued a statement about how climate change is a human rights matter relevant for business and human rights. They've also done this report I just mentioned on the extractive sector and just transition. How does that, what does that mean in terms of moving towards renewables, which is part of climate change? And also it came out of our call for proposals, this real desire to kind of engage in these issues. Plus, just by accident, it so happened that COP28 um, happened the, the following day after the end of our forum. So there's a whole range of factors which I think very much are relevant. And in addition, just coming back to litigation, um, there had been this major case, well, there have been a number of major cases against governments, but also this major case in the, in the Dutch courts against Shell for its climate change impacts. So that there is a real sense to which these are issues which are affecting uh, a lot of us. When I was at the forum, we also, in the speaking of the reunion element of the forum, I got to sit down with a lot of Harvard students and alumni who attended the forum either for the first time or they had come as well as part of their work. And we had a good discussion, actually felt like a seminar session at the forum itself, talking about what our experience was like and um, our observations. Um, One of the conversations we had got me thinking about some of the challenges that must come with organizing a forum that's balanced in terms of different goals and reaching all the different sectors. Um, On the one hand, there's this desire to bring in the private sector and create a space that's open to constructive dialogue so that companies know what human rights standards are, and they can share back about what they're actually doing in terms of respecting and protecting human rights. On the other hand, because of resources, you may have disproportionate representation of the stakeholders. So there may be a risk that particularly powerful corporations could try to dominate the event or worse, use it as a way to kind of obscure bad behavior on human rights. Um, some of the things that we were discussing in our group was the fact that the forum takes place in the United Nations, which is not, you know, in Geneva, which is a, one of the most expensive cities in the world. So it may be difficult for grassroots human rights defenders to get there or for visa purposes and other things. Also, because it's a diplomatic space and you want to create dialogue, it's a space worth its own polite diplomatic language, which doesn't really tend to the language of sort of naming and shaming, which is maybe more used in other um, aspects of human rights advocacy. 
Do you have any concerns about keeping that balance between making the form accessible and also making sure that there's still accountability for any uh, human rights abuses that have been happening in the past? Well, um, firstly, it's fabulous. There are so many people who are Harvard students or Harvard alumni or Harvard um, uh, academics there. And I want to give a particular call out and thanks to the students from Harvard who were volunteers, had to wander around in these bright luminescent uh, jackets, but they were fabulous and it was a great, great asset to have them. The second thing is you ask lots of different things. I think you're right, having um, it in Geneva is, is problematic cost-wise and, and those things. At the same stage, it is, if you like, a neutral venue in the broader sense, a neutral venue. And we try very, very hard to obtain funding for grassroots people, rights holders on the ground to be able to attend. And that's not so easy, but we we usually manage to do that. Sometimes we are stuck with visas. Some of these people we, we, we seek to bring don't get a visa from their country or whatever for various reasons. But we do try to make sure that there is a possibility of, of them being present. And plus, of course, there's also the fact that we do allow people to attend online. So that's also part of our, this deliberate plan. But you raise the other broader issue about how do we get this balance so companies don't dominate or, or something like that. I guess my experience, and I've attended pretty much every one, so well before I was a member of the working group, in fact, it's certainly not the case that companies dominate. And that is because if a company tried to do that, they are speaking in a room which will have an awful lot of civil society present who will not enable them to get away with uh, things that, that are simply not accurate. So that can also be a challenge for companies to attend. I certainly know that when engaging with companies, sometimes they're nervous that they're going to have to deal with difficulties. And so there is a bit of ensuring that companies do still come up and talk about the things they've achieved and some of the obstacles and difficulties they face. We've had companies talk about how how do they exit a conflict zone? It's not so straightforward. So that actually sharing their difficulties can also be helpful for um, the others present, including governments as well as, as civil society and other rights holders. So in fact, the balance is usually one where, which is possibly achieved by the fact that every year we get criticism from every single sector that there weren't enough of them speaking. So I don't know what that means, but it certainly sometimes means one gets somewhere close to being correct. I mean, this year we had about 32% from the private sector, about 30% civil society, good proportion of academics. We had a good proportion of people from governments and then international organisations. So there's a real mix of, of engagement. But you're, you're right to raise an issue. We're always conscious of it every year to make sure we try and strike a, a balance. But it's not always straightforward. And it's always one where we are seeking to ensure there is this diversity in the broader sense present, hoping that the companies that appear, civil societies that appear, are willing to do that exact engagement you talked about at the beginning. Is there anything that surprised you about the 2023 session? Probably the thing for which I was most emotionally surprised was the disability session, which was just so powerful. First time ever we'd had a session focused on the rights of persons with disability. And to have them appearing from all over the world discussing that 
and above all, having sign interpreters. The first time ever the four of them had that was a very distinctive visual cue that actually dis persons with disabilities matter. And those sign interpreters were there for the whole of the forum, which is, I think, extraordinary and says something about how uh, we can often ignore the people who seem to be invisible, and yet they need to be visible to companies, to states, and to, to all of us in thinking about that. The other session, which I think was great, was that there was a session for young people, for to new voices, if you like, in, in this field. And I think that's uh, important. And we also had um, screening of different films, short films, to which was also, I don't know whether you had a chance to go to any of them, but you know, fascinating diversity of different issues and discussions to show there are many ways of engaging in, in these issues. Anything else that you would want to discuss about the forum or about the work of the working group? I guess I would probably just say two things. I think the, the forum is still always a struggle financially because, you know, the UN itself in human rights is terribly reliant on funding and that's always hard. And of course, we don't get direct funding from businesses for obvious reasons. And yet we are the main UN body which engages with businesses. So it's trying to get enough funding so we can bring the people you talked about to the forum. And we also do, of course, regional forums. So it's not like Geneva is the only forum we have. We did one, for example, in Santiago in Chile. We did one in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And we've got one coming up in Bangkok in Thailand. So we do those other ones, but there's still a sense to which funding remains a, a broader human rights issue across all the, all the UN. The other thing I would just come back to the kind of point which which we began with, that you know, to have 4,000 people now engaged, present with these issues is really important. And they're probably just the top of a much, much bigger spectrum. At the same stage, business and human rights is not such an easy field. You have to know more than about human rights because you also have to know all about corporate law, environmental law, um, you have to know national and international law. There's a real sense of diversity in the areas you, you need to know in order to be able to practice well in this. So that I think sometimes it is amazes me that there are beginning to get enough people specializing in this. And I'd also say for any of your students listening, it's also an area where there is now some really interesting jobs available so that business want these people, um, governments want these people, international organisations want these people, academia wants these people, pra legal practice. And so there are now opportunities for people who are prepared to really engage in these issues because we want in the end these people in businesses saying, yes, these things matter. They aren't just immaterial. They aren't just irrelevant. They really matter. And that if they are saying that in business and they're saying that in governments where they realise that business wants these kind of regulations, then we can begin to have a much better engagement going forward. And I'll just mention two particular things which highlight where we've moved to. Just a few days ago, the European Union announced that they are introducing a new corporate sustainability due diligence directive, which is a mandatory requirement on all the large businesses to undertake human rights due diligence, which is at the core of business and human rights. And that will apply to all European businesses, but also to other businesses, including American businesses, which are operating in the EU. 
with consequences with civil claims as a liability. So that is a part of this huge step forward on this area that there's beginning to have this understanding that this is needed. And the second thing to say is more and more businesses are coming out and saying, actually, we need regulation on this area, not just for clarity, but also for their own reputational reasons, for their own competitive reasons. And I think that begins to build to towards hopefully a clearer establishment of a um, business and human rights field, which becomes clearer for all those involved so that the people attending the forum over time begin to think this is what these issues are. Here's a clarity. Here's which where areas which people can go forward with and develop and grow. And I think that's part of the excitement which comes out of the forum, but also is happening around the world. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I should say that um, the UN Guiding Principles have been really key in introducing the idea of, of corporations take, doing human rights due diligence, which is the idea that corporations will look at the impacts of their business activities and make sure that there are not negative human rights impacts of those activities. And I have to say, as someone who is has been in the area of law for a long time and has been skeptical of uh, non-binding standards, that it's been impressive to see the number of businesses that actually have decided to incorporate these standards into their work, um, even though they are not legally bound to do so in many places. And in some countries now, uh, legislation requiring companies to do this, and I think that speaks to the new EU due diligence standard, which is going to have an impact on a lot of activities around the world because we're thinking of not just companies that are, you know, in domiciled in the EU, but also the their supply chains and uh, which reach to many different regions of the world. So that's going to have a massive impact on environmental damages, on uh, labor standards um, and in many different countries. So that's that's a really big achievement. Beautifully expressed. And I think that's right. And that's part of the excitement of this field, the fact that you know, there is such a potential for us all to be engaged in where it goes to next. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Professor McCorkadale, for speaking to us. It's been wonderful to hear about the work that you do with the Working Group on Business and Human Rights and about the Business and Human Rights Forum, um, which is just uh, completed for the 2023 forum, but we're looking forward to what next year's um, um, 2024 and the years going forward bring to the table. So thank you so much for joining us. Completely my pleasure and lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. After speaking to Professor McCorkadale about the 2023 session, I thought it would be nice in the educational spirit of the forum itself to dig deeper into its legacy so I invited Corin Lewis, a longtime forum participant, onto the show to talk about how far the Business and Human Rights Forum has come and the impact it could have in the future. I'm happy to have Dr. Corin Lewis with us to discuss the impact and evolution of the UN Business and Human Rights Forum. Dr. Lewis provides legal advice, training, and consulting services to organizations of all types on the topics of business and human rights. She has written widely on the subject, including as it intersects with the rights of minorities, migrants, and indigenous peoples. Especially important and impressive for our purposes, Corinne has attended the UN Business and Human Rights Forum since 2012. So who better to share some institutional knowledge about the gathering with us? Corinne, thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Corinne, um, as mentioned in your introduction, 
You've been attending the Business and Human Rights Forum for over a decade now, if you can believe that yourself. Um, <laughs> I saw that you were present at the second meeting of the forum, where attendance was recorded in a PDF form posted to the internet. Um, now I should say that there's a sophisticated registration system that kind of serves as a de facto archive of the event, which connects participants to each other and to social media. It has links to live streams of the webcasts and other features. What else, I was wondering, has changed since the first days of the forum? Well, there has been a tremendous evolution in the content of the forum's panels um, over the past 12 years, um, which I think reflects the increasing maturity of the business and human rights field. In the early years of the forum, many of the presentations were intended to sort of foster understanding of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and were very general in their content. Whereas now panels in the, in the most recent forum, for example, are addressing challenges for specific particular industries, um, whether that's mining, technology, pharmaceuticals, um, AI, investor. And they're also delving into specific topics such as labor rights, gender response, children's rights. The panels also are increasingly um, considering the intersection with other areas such as, a, for the moment, I think um, most prominent is this intersection between human rights and the environment. There's also a growing understanding that without addressing corporate practices and the role of corporations in society in a more general sense, um, such as their lobbying activities and advertising, that it's not really um, possible to ensure responsible corporate conduct related to human rights. But there's also been an, a change in the atmosphere at the forum. I can recall from 2012, in fact, um, the sort of rather segmented nature of the forum, um, you know, sort of state representatives were discussing with other state representatives, you know, NGOs found, you know, um, representatives from NGOs together and businesses did the same. And there were, in fact, some incredibly acrimonious discussions when particularly NGOs pointedly highlighted businesses' infringements of human rights. However, there's now a much more collaborative atmosphere as businesses seem to accept the need to take concrete practical steps and thus are more open to having NGOs um, in particular, but also others, academics, um, for example, highlight gaps in protection um, and areas that need to be focused upon and, and addressed. Yeah, that's really interesting. We were talking with Robert as well about the collaborative nature of the forum and how it's a really unique space because of that, because you have sometimes lawyers who themselves are in, you know, even lawsuits with companies present in the same room with uh, representatives of big corporations and all of them talking about human rights and how unique that space is. So it's interesting to hear that that's been um, part of the evolution of the years to become that um, collaborative and information sharing type venue. I wanted to ask about all these different stakeholders. What do you think draws them to the forum? Um, maybe I should just start by asking you what what has brought you to the forum over the over the years. Yeah, the the opportunity um, to interact with persons who are involved in, interested in 
business and human rights from various walks of life, um, professions, um, from different geographic regions is really a strong point. I mean, it's a fantastic way to update yourself on current developments in the field, find out what initiatives are occurring, and to, frankly, to network and meet others um, who are also passionate about this, um, this area of work. It's, it's also just a lot of fun to interact with people who, who share a common interest and at the UN, um, which provides a, a very nice space in which to, to have this collaboration. Yeah, I definitely felt that too. I, t- I attended for the first time this year and it felt like, um, and a lot of cases when you're doing human rights work, you can be very um, separated from other people who are doing the work because you're focusing with your own particular clients you may be representing or with your own organization pursuing specific campaigns. Um, but it's it's really great to be able to meet others who are doing that work as well. And obviously from different sectors, like you mentioned. One thing I was, was interested in uh, talking to you about was the composition of the stakeholders. One thing that I noticed recently was that the working group on business and human rights put out statistics on the attendance. And it was really um, eye-opening to see the sheer number of people who attended, because I think they showed that there were 4,000 participants between those who registered for online participation and those who registered for in-person because it was a hybrid event this year. Um, So that's a huge number of people and it's still, I don't know if it's the biggest, but one of the biggest annual human rights gatherings that the UN has every year. But I noticed that the number of member state representatives was smaller than I expected. And there may be some alternative explanations for that. I'm, I'm not fully sure. Like one explanation could be that you know, member states already have access to the UN building because of their permanent uh, missions there. So maybe they don't need to register specifically the forum. But I did notice that in attendance in the rooms as well, at least in the audience, there were not as many um, member state representatives. I was wondering if that's something that you also observed and what you what you kind of make of that. Yeah, I did notice that. And I was also interested by the the sort of the pie chart that shows the um, attendance that the UN published after the forum. Um, I'm not quite sure how to interpret the the statistic they provided of 8% of the nearly 4,000 participants. I um, calculated that's about 320, I guess, governmental representatives. And so we have, you know, 193 states, member states. Um, but even with every state sending one or two governmental representatives, perhaps uh, their um, representative in Geneva or someone from the governmental office interested in the topic, um, this doesn't seem to me to be wholly adequate given the need for greater state action in the area. I think the small number of governmental representatives does perhaps highlight an ambiguity in state positions on adopting policies, legislation, and regulations that truly ensure respect for human rights by businesses. Now, while the NGO community and others have been advocating for stronger measures by states, consistent with the UN guiding principles, which provides that states are supposed to adopt you know, a range of, of approaches, a range of measures, regulatory measures, um, to ensure businesses' respect for human rights, the states, except for some European states and the EU itself, have really not adopted comprehensive policy or legislative regulatory measures in this area. And I think there's also pretty intense lobbying and pressure by businesses against binding legislation. Um, as just one example, BlackRock and other investors have lobbied the EU, for example, 
connection with the corporate sustainability due diligence directive that is being finalized um, and is expected to be issued soon in order to be exempted from the coverage of the directive. So I think there's a, a bit of pushback and it leaves states in a little bit of an area where they're not quite certain yet how to navigate and proceed um, with pressure, this pressure from NGOs and others on one side and reluctance by businesses to see additional regulatory or legislative measures. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me actually of one of the panels where there was a conversation between panelists and audience members about whether banks should be included in due diligence guidelines and legislation. So it was quite interesting. I did also notice there were some states, at least, who were interested in saying that they needed their like more capacity to be able to monitor what companies were doing, um, especially states from the global south, um, or to have systems of collaboration with other states to kind of figure out what best practices in that area. But I agree with you that it does seem like there's some ambivalence in that area about whether states, either they don't have the capacity or they don't have the will to monitor, regulate, and enforce. But that's really a lot of the teeth that that comes in at the end, even with even with good due diligence legislation, we've seen some countries, courts have been hesitant to really, you know, rule on the merits on those cases. So, um, yeah, I do think that's an area for us to keep watching. I was wondering, too, what have you seen in terms of enforcement of business compliance with human rights or ways that the abuse in human rights field has changed over the years? And, and do you see the forum playing a role in that? Yeah, I, I believe the forum has definitely contributed to the development of business and human rights and to the protection of human rights in practice. And it's one of a number of pressure points that have pushed this field forward and drawn attention to it. And I, I think one of its really key roles has been in raising awareness about the UNGPs, um, the UN Guiding Principles, among businesses and governments, and, and also contributed really to the stature of the UNGPs as, as the global standard for business conduct. So this is a really significant accomplishment, given that the UNGPs are soft law. And then I think another way in which the forum has contributed is by including speakers from businesses that are implementing um, they're taking steps to implement their human rights responsibilities. And so the forum in this way promotes really good practices and encourages a bit of a race toward the top as businesses you know, really strive to be industry leaders in their approach to human rights and have recognition for that position. And then I think similarly governments that are contemplating policies or perhaps regulatory measures, they are closely following developments that are occurring in the EU in particular, but also, you know, in, in um, particular countries, you know, with France, with the first, um, uh, the duty of vigilance law, and then followed by other countries, including Germany. So it provides government officials with opportunities also to hear about issues that have arisen, um, challenges that are being faced, and how governments are actually approaching the field. I think that makes a lot of sense about raising the the profile of the UN guiding principles and solidifying that they are the international standard for how businesses should respect human rights. I think for those of us who've been skeptical of soft law standards, it's been really a lesson to see how much the UN guiding principles have actually been adopted by states and um, 
the states have been inspired by that for for their own legislation that does have you know enforcement power and then companies that have been being inspired by the UN guiding principles and developing their own policies it's been just really powerful to watch and i hadn't thought as well about what you've mentioned about kind of sharing practice between companies and states who may be tentative or even might not know what first steps to take to better protect or respect human rights, seeing that others have done it and having that race to the top of of, of following their models. So that's very, very powerful. Yeah, I think it's important because for businesses too, as well as governments, they don't want to be the only one out there undertaking, for example, uh, regulatory measures if other governments aren't doing that because you don't want businesses then, you know, forum shopping, for example, on the basis of restrictions or um, additional requirements and for businesses as well. As an industry moves forward on an issue, it makes it a lot easier than businesses and particularly small, medium-sized businesses that don't necessarily have the resources of, um, you know, enormous uh, multinational companies, then also can um, adopt measures in a more cost-effective manner and also, you know, on whether it's on their supply chains or um, whether um, they need to, for example, discuss approaches with governmental authority that allows them to have more of a, a sort of a cohort in doing so. I'm wondering what surprised you about the 2023 forum, if anything. <laughs> I was I was first struck by the number of young people, frankly. There mm. are a lot of young people, which is great to see um, the interest um, in, in this topic, um, both, you know, people from companies as well as um, from from NGOs, um, which is good, and a growing number of NGOs and a growing number of consultants in the field. Also, it was great to see the incorporation, greater incorporation of representatives from governments and organizations in developing countries this year. I particularly noticed that on panels, there was a real effort to have the developed world represented um, and provide a, a real diversity of voices in this sense. On the number of young people, I was also surprised by that. We had several Harvard students who were there and we ended up having a gathering with them. And I can say from the law school side that we do have a lot of students interested in the topic who come to this Kennedy School and they come to the law school and other places where human rights is being taught just because they have that interest in business and human rights. So it's really interesting to see this grow as a an area of practice that people see themselves working in. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's great to see the development of it. Um, I think this is, you know, we're in the early stages of this new area, but it will become you know, part of the standard practices of businesses and expectations by governments. And to see the number of young people taking an interest in this who will then carry these values forward as well in their work in the future is, is really um, encouraging. One question that we asked Robert from the working group is if he can give us any previews of what the 2024 <laughs> forum might be about. And he said that they were resting at this point. So oh, okay, <laughs> that was not on mind at the moment. Um, but I'm wondering from you, do, are there topics that you would want a future forum to discuss? Yeah, I think one of the topics that I would like to see greater discussion of is this this wider context of the role of business in society. I think that's a fundamental issue and it remains one um, today, even though we're talking about businesses' greater respect for 
um, human rights and, and the environment um, as well, because businesses have pressure to be profitable, to make money, you know, for their shareholders or for their owners, as the case may be. And we need to ensure that businesses, that there's a, a bit of a shift in mindset in the expectations of businesses and thus the way persons who work in or, or own businesses view um, the role of businesses in society. And then I think a, another topic that also needs to be you know, further developed is the role of advisors to businesses, and those include lawyers. Lawyers under the UN Guiding Principles, of course, um, you know, in their law firms, the law firms are considered entities under the UN Guiding Principles and thus are also supposed to respect human rights. But lawyers also have ethical obligations under their um, code of ethics. And it's not clear. There's a, quite a gray area, I think, for lawyers as to what these UN guiding principles and the development of the business and human rights field, what this means for their role um, as lawyers um, themselves and also, of course, as advisors and counselors um, to businesses. And I think the same thing could be said for, you know, accountants and consultants to businesses. Um, these are all major advisors to businesses that have impact on how businesses perceive their options and their conduct um, and th how, they, how they approach um, a human rights problem, for example. Yeah, that's a really great idea. I mean, I really support that being a topic because someone who works in the space of human rights and the environment, we've seen the huge role that business plays in, in changing even government's public policies, which then end up having an impact on human rights, for example, on you know, what kind of resources are available for adaptation, um, what kind of resources are available for equal service delivery among different communities in terms of water, um, healthcare, et cetera. So yeah, understanding how the UN guiding principles can guide businesses and decisions that they make on those kind of activities as well would be really, really useful, I think. Is there anything else um, that you would want to share with us about the forum from your experience? I would just encourage people to attend, um, whether in person or remotely. I, I think it really is a very unique opportunity to, if you're new to the field, to gain uh, sort of an acquaintance with the um, principles and also the issues that are at the forefront of the field. Um, and also, you know, if if you're an experienced lawyer um, in advising businesses, it allows you to develop your area of practice um, and, and to stay current with the developments that are occurring and that will be, I think, predominant for businesses as we move forward over the next decade, basically. Yes, definitely. That's a great admonition. And I should say as well that there are a lot of panels that are also recorded and available online because I, I know this just because I, I literally was watching one a, a day or two ago when I was preparing for um, some work that I'm doing that's on the artificial intelligence. So I was thinking I didn't I did actually make that panel. Let me go watch it now. Um, but the online the ability to participate online and the ability to watch 
some of the discussions afterwards has made it a lot more accessible as well. Um, I think that's something that's been a great evolution over the years too. So thank you so much, Corinne, for talking to us today. No, my pleasure. Thank you. This is Maggie, and I hope you enjoyed Aminta's interviews with Robert McCorkdale and Corinne Lewis. Thanks to our podcast team, Ali Gilliard, Rachel Harris, and Peter Kokoma. You can find Justice Matters wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.